All right, well, good morning and happy new year to everybody. I'm sure a few more will straggle in. There are handouts in the back. There's a few up here. And if you cannot see the board, then I recommend you move so that you can see the board if you'd like to. Uh, we are, sorry, got cut off in your handout, but this is week five of six in our series on the Old Testament shadows of Christ. So we've already been looking at how in the Old Testament, we have these shadows that are fulfilled in Jesus primarily, but of course, in the, the rest of the New Testament and in the future, the second coming of Christ as well. We looked at how Jesus fulfilled Adam as the, he's the second Adam, the last Adam as the true human. Um, that's why we have the incarnation. That's why we have Christmas. We looked last week at Abraham, how the promises, the covenant is given to Abraham, which is now being fulfilled in Jesus. Next week, Emmanuel will take us through Moses, how Jesus fulfills Moses as a lawgiver. And he also taught us about how Jesus fulfills a David as both a shepherd, but more importantly, as the king, the king of the earth, which is in many of our Christmas hymns. Dan taught us about Emmanuel. Jesus would be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the whole idea of the presence of God, primarily in the temple. And then today we're going to be talking about rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight, great verse, something you should know and memorize. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is Jesus talking. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this new year. And I'm sure many of us have marked it. We have plans. It's a, it's a chance to look at our lives again, maybe make resolutions or just take account. It's a pause for many in their school or work life. It's been a time to get together with family and kind of reconnect. For others, it's been a lonely time. Uh, for some, it's been a difficult time to look back at the loss uh, of a loved one uh, or just uncertainty in life. We don't know where we are. We didn't plan on being where we are now. We pray that the gospel would shine forth this morning because Jesus will be magnified. We thank you for this series. We thank you for your word. Uh, let us see the richness of it. Um, even if we're overwhelmed by the details, help us to love Christ more, to appreciate him more uh, this morning. For we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, so last week, Ed took us through the Abrahamic Covenant, and the two primarily things of the Abrahamic Covenant are a people and a land. And today we're going to be concentrating on how that land um, kind of carries out into rest. So our main passage is going to be Hebrews 3, if you want to turn there. I should have said that earlier. Hebrews 3. Oh, let me, while you're turning there, let me just... Here's a couple of verses. There's tons of them on your sheet. Um, I think everything I'll say today comes from those verses. I won't say them all. And there's 25 times more in the Bible. So I've, these have been very selective. So we kind of see as a people in a land, you can, you can already start to see the continuity. God put his people in a land called the garden, right? And then we have Abraham who's promised this multitude of nations this, this great massive number of people like the stars of the heaven, and he gives them a land. 
in Canaan. So Canaan is that region where current Israel lives on the east side of the Mediterranean. Um, the whole region there is called Canaan, if I say that today. That people is formed into a nation at Mount Sinai just before they enter the land. And of course, 500 years later, they end up having a king. So that nation becomes a kingdom. And then of course in Jesus, we already see, here's a couple of examples how the people and land are fulfilled. First Peter 2, but you Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. He's quoting pretty much Exodus 19. As far as the land, what does this land mean now in Jesus? Acts 1, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this spiral, the gospel starts there in Canaan, in the land of Israel, and then to the surrounding regions, until it extends to the whole world. So this idea of land takes on a whole new meaning. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, so he's quoting the Holy Spirit, i.e. speaking through David in Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Okay, so we have a lot going on here. Let me just break down the main parts to you. So we have David, we're going to find out in chapter 4 that David is the psalmist here. So he's, he's writing a psalm here, speaking about events that took place in the time of Moses. So remember, the people were in Egypt. They, the exodus, they exited, um, God saved them through Moses and exited them with this promise to carry out the Abrahamic covenant. And they're going to go into the promised land, into Canaan, was to Israel. And so this, this whole journey... And there's this whole idea of rest, that this land is going to provide rest. So, first of all, we're talking about here, we're talking about Canaan, or the promised land, or Israel. Did I spell that right? There's a lot of A's in that word. So, that, and they're going, to, they're going to provide some kind of rest that is tied to this land of Canaan. But what happens? They're given this promise, but they, they don't believe God, and they disobey God. So, disbelief and disobedience, which always go together. I'm probably going to misspell things here. These are really two, two sides of the coin. Disbelief and disobedience led to what? Death. 
The promise was to enter the land and have rest. But because of disobedience and, and disbelief, apparently that was a condition upon these things, they ended up dying in the wilderness. Well, David in the Psalm 95 is saying, well, this wasn't really about Canaan. This whole idea of rest was, was really a shadow and it wasn't fulfilled, in the words of our series, in Canaan. This wasn't it at all. Because by the time David is, is writing, they're in the land. They've entered the land, and yet David is contending that there's still a rest to come. And he, let me use a different color here. His big word is today. There's, a, there's some kind of a promised rest that's perpetual, as long as it's called today. As long as you woke up this morning, as long as there is breath in your, in your bodies, there is a promise, David says, about rest. And what does he say? This rest is not, not so much tied to a land called Canaan, but it's a sharing in Christ. So I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself. So we have Hebrews is written here after Jesus. We have Hebrews. I've jumped ahead. I've confused myself. The psalm talks about being hardened by sin. Let's just say sin here. Let's forget Hebrews for a second. We've got David talking about today, and he's, he's concerned that his hearers, 1000 BC, the way they're going to carry disbelief and, and disobedience is to be hardened by sin. And he's pleading with them, look at the example of the Exodus. Look at the example of this people that died in the wilderness and let them be a warning post to you. Don't be hardened by sin or you also won't enter whatever this rest is supposed to be. And so now we have Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews, after Jesus has died, he's saying, hey, guess what? What David saw as today in perpetual is still true. And what he calls it is sharing in Christ. So somehow, somehow in the Old Testament shadows, rest is, complete, or rest is completely tied to a land. Remember the land from Abraham. Rest is tied to entering that land. And yet we know in the real fulfillment, it's, it's going to be sharing in Christ, whatever that means. Notice the binary nature here of this exhortation. The people either made it into the land or they didn't. There's no middle ground here, right? You either trust God and have full rest, what we'll see what that means, or you die. That's it. Those are the two options. There's no halfway. I'm going to kind of follow Christ. I'm going to follow Christ, but it's going to be miserable. No. God promises rest. Trust him. Follow him, and you will find rest, and you will not die. Look at the the descriptions here in Hebrews 3 about disobedience and unbelief. Hard heart, rebellion, testing God, going astray, ignorance, evil hearts, deceit, sin, falling away. So we're not talking about some momentary lapse of judgment, some, some, some momentary weakness. This is a persistent disobedience and unbelief. They've hardened their hearts. They've become hard over time, and they refuse, and they refuse, despite all of God's patience, all of his provision, all of his protection. They've just said no and no, and they don't trust. God brought them out of Egypt. He did the ten plagues, and they can't trust him to bring him safely into the promised land. 
They show their hearts to be very hard. Let's go to Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of enemies rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united by faith. They were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he points a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, so that's Moses obviously is replaced by Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest in Canaan, then David would not, God would not have spoken of another day later on, i.e. in David. If, if the rest would have been fulfilled in the time of Moses and Joshua going in the promised land, then David, 500 years later, wouldn't have been talking about any of this in his psalm. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. I love that verse. Strive to enter rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, I know there's a lot there. I don't, you don't need to become an expert on, the, expert on this passage. Um, maybe I should have even erased some of that. Okay, so we have in a little more detail what he already said in chapter 3. So rest in Canaan, he's now very emphatic that they're... Start going into blue here, right? I'm in the New Testament. So he says there remains, there remains a Sabbath rest. So he's, he's very, very emphatic about this perpetuity of this rest promise. But now, instead of disobedience, he, what was in the negative in chapter 3, disbelief and disobedience, he now says those who believe, those who are united by faith. So, so a faith in Christ now is that ultimate fulfillment, right, of way of entering the rest. Those who believe enter God's rest. That's it. So we have this rest promised in shadow form in a land, but now we have belief in Christ is to enter God's rest. That's at least a partial fulfillment of what it means to enter God's rest. Then he sp and then he says a few th new things. Instead of death in a desert, we're going to talk about, I should carry this with me. To enter God's rest is to rest from our own works. Okay, still a little confused. So I'm going to believe in Christ, but that belief in Christ necessarily means resting from our own works. That's the gospel, right? It's grace or works. It can't be both. Either you're going to rely wholly on what God has done and is doing, or you're going to trust your own self. It's not, God, I'm going to work as hard as I can, and God's going to come in with the rest and, and fill in whatever's lacking. Maybe I get 80%, Mark only gets 30%, you know, that's how it is. But God comes in and, and gets us all to 100%. No, we're all at zero. And, and all we can do is embrace and receive the grace that God offers. 
That's the only path to rest. Yes. Yep. So Mark's asking about the striving. So here I'm saying rest, rest, rest. And, and yet he says at the end of that Hebrews 4, you need to strive to enter that rest. We're going to cover that. <laughs> and there, I, that's why I love the verse. It's just, it kind of turns you upside down. If I don't answer the right then let me know at the end. Now he also introduces something from the beginning of the world. So we're not just talking about the time of Moses and Joshua in the promised land. We're not just talking about David and the psalm. We're not just talking about Hebrews, talking about believing in Christ. Now he brings in this whole idea of at the beginning of the world, and he introduces something about the Sabbath. That makes sense. We know Sabbath. We know our Sabbath command that we're, we're called to work six days but rest the seventh. And that's our Sabbath command, right? There were other Sabbath commands. The land was supposed to be rested every seven years, right? And then every 50 years, there was a, a year of Jubilee. So we have multiple Sabbaths, actually, in, in the law. But he says it goes back to the, to the creation of the world. So here we have God resting, and yet somehow by the time we get to Moses, there's no rest. What happened? Something has happened from rest to a need to enter rest. Clearly the rest didn't continue. Something has gone wrong in the world. All right, so let's just back up now and understand these concepts um, from outside of Hebrews. There's a lot in that passage I know, but those are the main things here. I just want to prove basically that Jesus fulfills a rest that was talked about in the Old Testament. Okay, so let's just ask a little more. What is rest? What, what does the Bible mean by rest? So the Hebrews doesn't explain it all. The first thing is that the word, on, and it's all on your handout here, the word literally means ceasing. You stop doing something, right? You stop working. That's, that's pretty obvious what we mean by rest. Genesis 2, God finished his work and he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, of course, God doesn't need to rest like we think of rest. He wasn't tired. It was like, man, I need a break. Now, the, the concept of rest definitely applies to that for us, right? That's an important aspect of why we need rest is because is we need it. No, but for God, he rests. Why? Because his work is finished. There's a completion there. At the start of the creation week, the earth was described as what? Formless and void without form and empty. And we see through, through creation week, the first three days, he forms it. He fashions the heavens and the sea and the land. And the second half of the week, he fills those spaces. Birds of the air, fish of the sea, the beasts, and man. Right? So he forms it and he fills it. And he's done. He, he's done what he set out to do. He doesn't have arms. But he rests, right? He comes in and he rests. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Ten Commandments. Well, for God, rest doesn't mean just stopping everything, right? It specifically says he ceased from creation. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created the world. That work was done. But what does he do now? He enjoys it. God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. So rest includes also an enjoyment. It's, 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 an, it's an active enjoyment. 
It's not just sitting back and doing nothing. It's not just sleeping. He also see that he is in real communion and fellowship with his creation. Genesis 3.8, God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. He's, he's in rest, and yet he's walking there among his creation and enjoying it. So rest includes communion and fellowship. It also includes an idea of reigning. Uh, so Emmanuel talked to us about David as king. Well, we know that Adam and Eve were put there to rule the earth, right? To names the animals. He, they're there to rule the garden, to rule the earth. And if you think about the, the Bible, Genesis was written and given to the people in Moses' day, and God is communicating to them in language that they can understand and, and the cultural issues that are going around them. Well, what was a king in that day? The king was often far at home, on, from home on conquest, right? War or whatever, taking lands. At some point, he brings his armies home and he rests. He goes back to his throne. He sits down. He's at rest. And what does he do in that throne? He's receiving adoration from his people, right? Often worship because he's seen as a god. Um, he's, he's attending to the affairs of state. Maybe he's settling disputes between individuals. Maybe he's figuring out how to get water or or whatever, you know, the health of his nation. He, he's at home attending to the nation as opposed to conquering. He's protecting and guarding his people. He's tending to the garden, right? Well, that's what's going on here in the beginning. He's tending to things. He's taking care of things. And that, that is part of rest. A king comes home to rest at home. It's interesting that uh, the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 is said, because God, God works six days and rests the seventh. Therefore, that's what we should do when Moses gives us the law. But the second time Moses gives us the law, it's, it's quite a different reason. In Deuteronomy 5, it's no longer because God worked six and rested a seventh. Why are we to rest now? You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you up from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. So Canaan was also, the promised land was also a rest from slavery and persecution. It was a freedom to worship God. Okay, now we've talked about rest. Let's talk about land. What's important about having land? Why is this such an important promise to Abraham? And how does that land now provide rest that we saw in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3? Well, I think there are three Ps we can talk about. We could go to lots of places. We'll go to a few here. But land provides provision. We know it was, it was a land called what? Land flowing with milk and honey. This land has everything you need. It's worth, it's worth the treachery you're going to have going through um, the desert from Egypt. It's worth it. It's worth those perils. It has everything you need. It has uh, protection. From all your enemies. Deuteronomy 11. No one should be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. God is ensuring protection. You get into your own land, you can have fortified cities, you can concentrate your people, you can be protected. You're, you're, you're you know, you're an observed um, and appreciated uh, people in a certain group. That's your land. And then there's presence. By the way, I got these three Ps from my brother who just published a book on Genesis 1 that is very good. Um, the idea of land. 
Exodus 25, let them make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. Now, the, now Dan talked about this. I don't want to go into too much detail, but we have an omnipresent God, right? He is everywhere. And yet he appears, he communicates to us in ways that are localized, that are in very specific places. Uh, so in the law, when the law is given, the people are to make a sanctuary. And that, that, that container, I don't know how big it was. It was a big tent probably, right? Um, that somehow God was there in a way that he wasn't everywhere else. And that's not truly how God is, but that's how he shows himself. And of course, later in the time of David, Solomon specifically, a temple is made. Another thing we need to think about when we're talking about land is the whole idea of the exile. So remember, in the time of the kings, after David, uh, 120 years later, I think, after David, the people are taken out of the land and put into exile in, in Babylon and Assyria. And so think of that exile as a reversal of the land promise, right? They go into the land, there's disobedience and unbelief again, perpetual, persistent, and God, to punish his people, he sends them out of the land. So it's, an exile is a reversing of the entrance of the promise of the, of the land. It's an anti-exodus in a sense. And this is really interesting. Why were the people exiled? And specifically, for how long they were exiled? Well, we, Second Chronicles tells us, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So remember I said one of the Sabbath commands in the law was to rest the land every seven years. You'll work the land for six years, and then it'll rest. Well, apparently, for about 500 years, 70 Sabbaths, right, 490 years, they had not been following. They had not been keeping that law. And God is saying, that land is so precious to me, it needs a Sabbath. I will have my Sabbaths. So Israel, you will leave the land. My land will get its rest. It's phenomenal. There's lots of things we could talk about. I think it's, it's an example. It's kind of just emblematic of disobedience to the law in general. The Sabbath is actually called the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And so I think that it, it was a special way of signifying a disbelief and a disobedience in the whole law. They have just not kept my law. They have not known my ways. Using the words back here, therefore I was provoked with that generation. So instead of not entering the promised land, he now exiles them from the land. See how it all starts to tie together? These themes come up over and over. Okay, so on the back of your handouts is this nice little grid. If you're not in the middle of a study, some kind of Bible study, I would really commend this to you for the next couple of weeks. Take these ideas of Sabbath and land, provision, protection, presence, exile, and I'll throw in Exodus here as well. Um, I know I'm going to mix those up today. I guess I can throw a Sabbath up here. Some of the verses I've given you, there are a lot more. You can work through time. Work through the Bible and how each of these eras, are, you can kind of see these shadows come to some, some kind of fulfillment. And you can already start to see that there's no simple single shadow and single fulfillment. We're going to see in a minute here how it's, it's really a continuum of shadows. It's a progression of shadows and a progression of fulfillment as time goes on.
We often talk around here about the already but not yet. We're here between the first and second comings of Christ, right? So th there are a lot of these promises and these fulfillment that are being fulfilled, but they're not fully fulfilled in our lifetime. We're not there yet. It's very much what was going on between here. Between Egypt and Canaan, the people have left Egypt, right? They're in the desert, but they're not in the promised land yet. And we start to see that God is already providing for them and protecting them and his presence is with them. But it's still in a very shadowy form. And that's exactly how we live our lives. And that's how we ought to, to view these things. When we read these things in the Old Testament, these kind of concepts should just be percolating in our mind. All right, so let, let me just give you some of the answers to your study sheet there. So I'm going to try to talk about some of these issues in each era here. Well, we already talked about Eden. We already know that it's, it was all very good and God walked in the day. Uh, John Walton's an Old Testament scholar, and he, he's big on getting us to understand Genesis by understanding the language and culture of the people around them, which is called the ancient Near East. And he would say that it was always talked, no, no controversy, that gods rested in their temples. That word rest is used, that ceasing. So when Moses is writing Genesis, that, that wordplay is being used. And you can kind of see, kind of like um, a king coming to the throne. Uh, we were just in Rome, and we got to see these multiple temples of gods and goddesses. There was a localized place for this god or goddess to come to. Now, of course, those gods were not omnipresent like our god. That's the whole point. But there, there they were. They rested in their temple, uh, and they received honor and adoration from the people. Well, as Dan told us, you should really see Eden as a temple. Uh, and when it comes to the sanctuary and it comes to the temple later on, if you read those descriptions of how it's built, it's all creation imagery all over the sanctuary. So the creation itself was a temple. It's where God was, and he was at rest. God rested there. So what happened? In the fall, when man, uh, Adam and Eve sin and they break God's commandment, everything is undone. Everything that's beautiful in Genesis 1 and 2 is completely turned upside down. And this rest is also turned upside down. The ground becomes difficult to work. It's no longer a delight to tend the garden. It's a chore. It's a labor. By the sweat of your brow, you'll work the land. The woman's desire will be contrary to a husband. So we used to have peace. Everything was shalom. Everything was in order. Everything was just the way it could be so I could rest. And now we're going to have power struggles in marriages, in societies, between nations. We're going to have wars until the end of days. The rest is undone. That's not rest. It's chaos. And what happened to Adam and Eve? They're exiled from the garden. They're exiled from the land that God had given them. In fact, God is protecting the garden from man. Well, what happens? <laughs> Here's God resting from his creation for all time, right? It's perpetual. There's no end to that seventh day if you read it carefully. But God goes back to work. <laughs> This time, it's not to create the world. It's not ex nihilo creation in a physical sense. He has a promise right there. In all the curses, he says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's an offspring. There's a seed coming from the woman that's going to change everything. It's, it's the early gospel, the proto-evangelum, we call it. There, there's right there, in the midst of the curses, there's a promise that's going to be carried out later on in history. John 5, 
the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus is working on the Sabbath. That's the day of rest, Jesus. Do you not know your law? But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So what is Jesus saying? I'm not at rest. The father's not at rest. We are diligently working. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's not, he's not, re, he's not creating the world, is he? He's still in rest from creation, but now he's in the work of redemption, of salvation. Because of the fall, because the rest was all undone, God and Jesus are bringing about rest through redemption. He's at work. I ought to be healing on the Sabbath. That's what you do. That's rest. There's no conflict between the Sabbath command and healing people. One of the first verses I ever memorized for God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So salvation is a creative act. The same God and the same power that created the world is what's creating light in our hearts. It's creating life. Things that never existed, ex nihilo, out of nothing. You were born in this world dead completely lifeless, not, not a spark of divinity, not, not a head start, not just neutrality through the waters of baptism, anything like that. You're dead, and you're lost. <laughs> you're outside of God's promises. And until God creates in you a heart, creates life in your heart out of nothing, until he just decides and declares it with his word to do so, you're dead. And so all, all these pictures of God creating life in the world can be said, we are God's new creation, right? We're, we are the new creation. And we're only at Adam. Abraham, Genesis 13, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. So the first promise of land is given to Abraham, and then they look out at this land of Canaan, and it's described as the garden of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? We can already see that Canaan represents a partial restoration of Eden. Right? So the, the fall undid what God had given us in Eden. And so now they look at Canaan and it's described like Eden. They're, they're thinking back to what they have. I don't know how they knew it, right? We don't have an Old Testament written yet. But they've been told. They know about this garden of Eden. And they're saying... Well, this is what Eden must have been like. Look how, look how much it provides for all, of, all that I need. God's presence. At the cutting of the covenant in Genesis 15, God establishes covenant by appearing as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Again, God's presence, his omnipresence is localized in things that we can see and apprehend. Well, this, this people does grow after Abraham. Uh, it, it does grow in multitude, but because of the wickedness of Jacob's sons, the people end up not in their land, but they end up in Egypt. So Abraham started settling in the land that was promised, but now they're out of land. They're not there anymore. They're down in Egypt. They're enslaved because of sin, because of disobedience, because of unbelief, just like we keep seeing over and over. So then God raises up this prophet Moses. He appears to Moses. His presence is seen again in a localized place, in the burning bush. 
He appears in the burning bush and declares that the ground is holy. The ground around the bush is holy because God is there and he's meeting with you in a special way. And of course, we know the Exodus account, and I'm sure Emmanuel will cover more next week. He le- how does he lead the people through his presence? He leads them through a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. There we see the presence of God leading them through the desert where they should go. Again, it's this already, not yet. I'm not in the promised land, but God is already starting to show himself to me. In the language of Ephesians 1, they have obtained an inheritance, but they have yet to acquire the inheritance. Ephesians 1, 11 and 14. And of course, we see in Hebrews 3 and 4 that they, they're exiled into the desert. Well, so they're refused to enter the promised land. So basically, their exile is extended, right? Jacob's sons and the disobedience, they end up with Joseph in, in Egypt. And that exile, so to speak, is extended to them. They can't enter the land. Joshua 24, I gave you a land on which you have not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. What does that sound like? That sounds like creation week. Remember the first three days God created the spaces? He got them ready to be inhabited, and then he filled them with the creatures? Well, that's what, there's these structures that get into the promised land. There's all these structures. Thank you, pagans. You built these cities for us, and now we get to dwell in them and inhabit them. All this garden language still carried out in the promised land. Well, of course, we know about David uh, and Solomon being commanded to build a house. There's a cool wordplay back there I won't get into. David says, I'm going to build you a house, and God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build your house. I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. Your son's going to build my house. So there's a more permanent structure there to see the presence of God. Again, go back and listen to Dan's lesson. Jeremiah 4. So, of course, you know, 120 years after David, we have these kings. Again, perpetual disobedience, perpetual unbelief. I think eight of the 39 kings could be considered good in any, in any way between the two kingdoms. And, of course, the exile is coming, right? Jeremiah 4. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void. Where does that language come from? Jeremiah is now describing the promised land as formless and void. Only other time that expression is used in the Bible. And to the heavens, they had no light. They're not filled. Something's out of order. I looked on the mountains and behold, they they were quaking. There's no shalom, no peace, utter chaos in the land. The hills moved to and fro. I looked and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the air had fled. It's been unpopulated. (laughs) It's been exiled. We're back to the beginning where we need to start creation again. God needs to start establishing rest. I looked and behold, the fruitless land was a desert. No more fruit. It's a desert. All the cities were laid ruined before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Jeremiah is sitting there and just bemoaning what has gone wrong with the promises of God. All, all that he established in the garden, all that he promised through Abraham, it's gone. There is no sign at all that God is, is, even exists. Must have been a horrible time to be a believer in God. And of course, all these shadows now, we start to see the full fulfillment. And so I want to look at that in Jesus himself, his work, how that applies to me as an individual coming to faith, how it applies to us as a church community, and of course, an ultimate fulfillment. We're still in a shadowy sense. We're in the already but not yet phase. There's still an ultimate fulfillment for all these things that isn't even here yet.
and I'm going to have to move fast. John 6, our brothers ate the man in the wilderness, as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right? God gave manna. Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I said to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Look at this provision that they want. Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst, as I am right now. How was God's presence uh, seen in Jesus? John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle, the sanctuary, the holy place that was commanded here. Jesus says, uh, John says that Jesus is that tabernacle. He is the very presence of God, the localized presence of God for us. And then there's, there's kind of an exile, exodus, exile going on with Jesus. First, he leaves heaven, right? He, he leaves the glory that he had with the Father. Uh, he leaves all of that and comes to earth as a baby as we celebrated in Christmas. Philippians 2, he, he didn't hold on to that equality that he had with God. Later, Luke 9, who appeared in glory and spoke speaking of Jesus, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And the word for departure is exodus. Jesus spoke about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So he's about to go to Jerusalem. He's about to die for sins. And he's about to leave this world, as he told his disciples in the garden. I'm going out of this world. I'm, it's an exodus. Because I'm, for Jesus, this world was Egypt. He doesn't have the glory that he had with the Father before the world was created, John 17. He doesn't have it. <laughs> he wants to go out of that enslavement and back to that glory, back into the presence of God, the full rest that he has with the Father. Matthew 27, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is this presence no more presence. He's been exiled from God, the goodness of his Father. Thanks be to God. Three days later, he is restored to that rest through the resurrection. Now he's raised. Now, Father, he had said, glorify me in your own presence, the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now he's there. He's now back. He's established his glory yet again. He's received again. And he sits down, sits down at the right hand of God. He's back at rest. Jesus at the resurrection is restored to rest with the Father. All right. I'll have to skip here some of this stuff. Okay, what does this mean for us coming to faith? 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is a localized place for the presence of God. We know that God starts to reorder our desires, our affections. Our life gets back in order. He's, he, the creation week ordering. Things are, are, are kind of getting back to normality and to, to some sense of shalom and peace. Paul says he learns the secret of being content at peace in all situations. But, but it's never full in this life. It's never there just yet. And one, one day you're going to stand on the brinks of Jordan, but it's not the real Jordan entering into the promised land. It's, it's the Puritans and the Pilgrim's Progress, so it's the river of death. On that other side, there's a celestial city begging you to believe and continue. Not be disobedient, not, not have disbelief, but to believe until the end. 
Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are not seeking a homeland, not the shadowy land. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God has prepared for us a city, a place, a land. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. There's still a fulfillment, saints, of all these rest promises. There's still a place where God will commune with us and enjoy us, and we'll be at perfect peace and perfect rest. But it's also for all of us. You could read 1 Corinthians 10 about how the passing through the, the Red Sea was a picture of our baptism, right? We're actually, we're actually reliving that exodus and the entrance in the promised land through our baptism. 2 Corinthians 6 says that we are the temple of the living God. Not just you as an individual, your body, but we as the people. Are the, so we, there's, a, there's an importance to coming together as, as a community of believers because God meets with us in a way that he doesn't meet with you as individuals. Where two or three are gathered in my name. Don't discount the church. Think of the Lord's Supper. You, you can see the Lord's Supper. God, again, in a localized way, is to showing himself in some special presence at the table. In a spiritual sense, the land at the table is holy ground, like the burning bush. It's important to come to the table. It's important to come into the presence of God. Let me just read a couple. I know we're over. And the new heavens and new earth. So what's still to come? Look at some of these, these um, explanations of the new heaven and new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on every side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each, each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The provision given to us in the new heavens and new earth, far surpassed. We're not just a returning to Eden, returning to paradise. It's better. It's not a garden anymore. It's a city. The presence of God, Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. No more shadow. God himself, his presence, his very presence, his real presence will be with us. There will never be an exile. No, no more exile. No more, no more threat of being moved out of the land onto something else. It'll be complete. Sin has already been ended. A couple chapters earlier, the Satan and all his angels have already been destroyed and thrown in the lake of fire. There's no more threat. Protection is full. There's nothing else to fear. We really will be at complete and abiding rest from ourselves and from all of our enemies. Let me just say one point of application. If what I'm saying is true, Notice we didn't even get into which day is the Sabbath. We didn't even get into is there a, is there a current weekly Sabbath like we believe. Well, those are all secondary issues. They're not unimportant. They're very important issues. But we, I don't think there's much I said today that can be much controversy. If you're a new believer, a young person, or you're speak, teaching your children, the things I've spoken today are quite simple actually to apprehend. And so as a new believer, you have to have great hope. I can get the 80% solution in a week, right? Then I have the rest of my life to, to you know, argue about the details on the margins. And that ought to create, create unity within the church between different denominations, between different types of Christians. 
we should all be unified on these truths. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the rest that you have promised in Jesus. We know that we have only had a foretaste. Help us to read our Bibles, Old Testament and New, and to see this work that you're doing in all of the world, in all of history. And help, help us to see that your word and your works that we could trust in the past would give us great confidence to believe what you've said about our future and not our present reality. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not resting from interceding for us. You intercede for us daily. You stand there at the right hand of the Father. Thank you for that work. And thank you that we can find rest. Help us to find it in measured ways, in increasing ways in our life. And yet help us to have great hope and have great patience because of that eternal and abiding rest in the future. Help us now enter a time of worship as the people of God. Be with us as you promised in your preaching at the table. Be with us in a localized, special way. And may we feel it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.